If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now, go. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear, check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner, check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone wants to be happy, even if they don't really realize it. It's, it's a goal. It's something people want to be. And when people want something, there are plenty of people who will say they can provide it for little effort in return for some money. And that seems to have really muddied the waters a lot. So, yeah, it's, it's a very murky field. That's one thing I ended up trying to combat with the book, trying to say, look, there's all these different claims, but what does the actual evidence say? You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Alice Lipscomb-Southwell, the production editor of BBC Focus magazine. Everyone wants to be happy. It's an inbuilt part of being human. But what exactly is going on in our brains when we feel happy And what can we do to ensure we live as happy a life as possible? In this episode, Jason Goodyear, the commissioning editor of BBC Focus magazine, speaks to Dean Burnett, a neuroscientist, comedian and science writer, about his new book, The Happy Brain, The Science of Where Happiness Comes From and Why. Your latest book's called The Happy Brain, The Science of Where Happiness Comes From and Why. So is there any particular reason you chose this uh, as the topic? Uh, yes, but it's not the most logical reason. It's quite stupid. and that's, It's a bit of an elaborate backstory, but um, the first book, The Idiot Brain, that was well, that came about due to a series of ridiculous circumstances which I never planned. And you know, it, I, I assumed my first attempt at a book would be my one and only attempt. Like I thought, well, someone like me shouldn't be writing books at all. I got this opportunity. I'm just going to splurge on my knowledge in it, hope for the best, and then... Then we'll see. And I assumed it would be like, you know, 
do some business for a few months with people who read my blogs and stuff, maybe a few libraries would buy it, and then it would all fade into the background and we'd all move on with our lives, pretend it never happened. That's not how it panned out. It's gone far better than anyone expected and a lot of uh, international success and so on. So it wasn't long before my publishers and agents were saying, so what's the next book about? And like I said, I hadn't planned on the first book, let alone the second one. So I had that very, very palpable, difficult second al- albums problem. But I had I had literally had no idea what to write about. And so I spoke to lots of friends and collaborators and fellow writers and scientists and people I know say, well, what do you think I should write about? And you know, they all give me ideas, but they were all different ideas. And while they were generally good ideas, they were all like, they're all things I wouldn't probably do as a blog post, but nothing I could really think could sustain a whole book. And the one thing that people kept saying when like they kept giving me ideas and I kept knocking them back was, well, at the end of the day, you just got to write about whatever makes you happy. And I'm a very literal person, it turns out. So I started taking that absolute face value, looking at what, what makes you happy and why. And, um, essentially just snowballed from there, really. So here we are with a book I've written all about what makes you happy and why, for the most ridiculous reason, I know, but there we go. So um, there's lots of kind of wishy-washy, self-helpy theories being banded around about how to achieve happiness and where it comes from and so on, but it's actually incredibly difficult to pin down, isn't it? That's like one of the first things I realised, because when you look up what you know, how to be happy or um, the, the science behind happiness, and I use science with air quotes there, it, it, like you say, it always comes down to oh, there's these five tips, or you just got to train your brain to do this. Or if you're if you're lucky, they'll invoke you just got to boost your dopamine or your endorphins or your oxytocin levels, and they lose a, a, a fragment of neuroscience to give it some credibility. But it you know, we're not talking about uh, a basic thing here. We're talking about you know, sort of a, a sort of a mental state of being. Really, it's um it's a complex emotion, it's, it's a frame of mind, it's a sense of well-being. Like how you define happiness can be really varied and complex. So the idea that there's this one simple trick to it is uh, is kind of, well, it's misleading, it's an oversimplification, and if I'm being generous, I think a lot of the time it's just a misunderstanding of how complex it is. I'm not saying there's anyone being actively mendacious about it, but it wouldn't surprise me if that turned out to be the case. So yeah, there's lots of no, because everyone wants to be happy, even if they don't really realize it. It's, it's like a, it's, it's a goal. It's something people want to be. And when people want something, there are plenty of people who will say they can provide it for little effort in return for some money. And that seems to have really muddied the waters a lot. So, yeah, it's, it's a very murky field. That's one thing I ended up trying to combat with the book, trying to say, look, there's all these different claims. But what what does the actual evidence say? Because a lot of people don't seem to really get into that that much. And I thought, well, I'll do that then. I'll do that. Yeah, well, anyone who does buy the book and picks it up will see um, that there's it's really crammed with science just by looking at the uh, the appendices and all of the <laughs> yeah. paper references. Yeah, that was um, well. Like my, my I did I did the um, the EndNote libraries. You know, you just collect your references as you go along. And for the first book, the Idiot Brain, I sort of found I had about 187 references, which I thought was quite a decent amount because um, it's all stuff I sort of knew already. It was like it was my stored up knowledge for things I like to talk about. And then this book, I checked at the end, I had like 740 references. Oh, I really have. It was weird that to sit down and actually learn new things. Like I'm in my 30s now. I've already got a doctorate. I don't. I thought I was done with learning, but no, apparently not. It just keeps coming. Yeah. So what, one of the things that you mentioned in the book, which I mean, some people may find surprising due to the, the sort of theories that are lobbed around a lot, is this? It's particularly difficult to study because there's no sort of happiness lobe in the brain that uh, neuroscientists can really concentrate their efforts on 
Not really, no. It's um, this is one of the things I talked to Professor Chambers about. Like I had, I had initial ideas to think I'll try and track down this happiness low using fMRI scanners, you know, the neuroscientist stock and trade there. But again, it's not that simple. It, it, it's the, the, I think the first chapter is dedicated to a whole thing about this this notion that the brain works in this sort of rather straightforward modular way. Like it has a it's a separate bit to every single thing that it's capable of. And you just put someone in a scanner and make them do something and the relevant bit of the brain lights up and you can say, that's the bit of the brain for this, that, and the other. And you see so many studies like this now. And like I think I've quoted scenes ones for, this is the bit of the brain for buying Apple products. This is the bit of the brain for voting preferences. This is the bit of the brain for belief in certain religions. And like that's not how it works at all. It's massively extrapolating from you know basic raw data. So the first chapter is all about these different techniques, which people claim they believe use, but don't actually work that way. So, but it's something as complex as happiness as, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not one thing. It's more like an umbrella term for different experiences and like, sensations and moods. Like you can be euphoric. You're happy if you're in a state of euphoria, but you can also be content, relaxed. There's also a state of happiness, but people are really euphorically relaxed. That's not a thing that, you know, the brain really lets us experience. It's really hard to be in an armchair in front of a fire, Tripping, <laughs> tripping your tripping your, your your intimate parts off. That's not sort of how it works. Is it? It's just a, it's a very different sensation. But both would come under the umbrella of happiness. So the idea that there's just one brain bit which supports all that is know, a misleading assessment of how the brain actually works and operates. Sure. And I mean, you mentioned this earlier, like to kind of make those sort of floaty theories appear on the surface more scientific people often mention serotonin dopamine oxytocin endorphins other chemicals and hormones and things but they do have a very important part to play in this sort of thing though don't they they do they are, they are part of it like and that's sort of both it's both good in that at least there's that much accuracy in these claims but it's also unhelpful because you know like if you want to tell a really good lie you should be, you know you should build it around a, a nugget of truth so it becomes more convincing and this is a similar thing there. Like the brain does use these chemicals, oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, and so on for these sort of things. And you know, so it, it does. But it, it, I, the way I sort of try and explain it is that the brain uses neurotransmitters, like you know, like language uses letters. There are different combinations, different types mean different things, and different words can be constructed in different ways. But that doesn't necessarily mean the letters themselves are you know uh, intrinsically part of that. I think the example I use is that if you take the word love, half of it is the letters O and E. So O and E are technically then the most romantic vowels, which, again, this is, it's a similar logic, though. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Well, obviously, dopamine is used in happiness, but dopamine is a happy chemical. Well, O and E are used in love, so O and E are romantic vowels. And therefore, if you want to chat someone up, you should use as many of them as possible. So like, hello, hello, <laughs> that isn't a way to charm someone. That's very unpleasant and terrifying. And that's the sort of logic we apply here. And just because this chemical is used in the process doesn't mean it is intrinsically, you know, like a, it's not the main thing that's happening there. It's a tool. It's a it's part of an apparatus. Or it's like saying like a house is made of bricks, which is true. But you get a pile of bricks, you don't have a house. You have a pile of bricks. There's a lot more work and, you know, it's part of a larger process, which results in the end product, which we want, which is what we're after. And so one sort of um, impression I got after finishing the book was uh, social interactions seem to be very much a key item at, at the base of what makes us happy. 
Generally, yeah. I mean, this is um, it wasn't something I'd sort of set out to prove to anyone. Like, I did want to emphasize. I think it came across okay, but I've sort of told more people since that I didn't have any particular theories or hypotheses or agendas to promote or access to grind when I started this book. I was just genuinely, it's genuinely a journey, as they say. Like they um, they wanted something a bit more quote unquote Ronson. <laughs> the publishers right. use that word. So uh, I see what they're saying. Yes, and um. So I thought, well, like, I don't know how this works. Like, I know there's a whole fields of positive psychology and workplace motivation, like, but I, I don't, I'm not part of that. And I thought, well, I, obviously I know how the brain, I have an understanding of how the brain works. I can speak the uh, language, as it were, but it's not my area. So I thought, well, I'll look into it from the ground up. And my thoughts were, well, I'll sort of see what I can find based on fundamental neuroscientific principles and the published evidence. And... If I can come up with, if I arrive at any conclusions or theories which are familiar in the mainstream, that suggests that those are the more accurate ones because there's so many out there. And that was interesting for me to sort of start from start from scratch and look into it that way. Uh, but one thing which kept coming up a lot was the importance of other people, of our social interactions. Like it's the fact that we are such a social species that like there's a lot of the main theories of why humans became so much more intelligent than our primate cousins or any other species is that we are the most social primates that we you know we depend on the group far more than any other species tends to and that allowed us to dominate the environment but when you when you sort of dominate the environment as part of a group then survival in the group becomes a driving factor evolution not survival in the wild and being you know, a successful part of a social group is a lot more cognitively complex than just running down prey animals. So we evolved for greater intelligence. But then that, that suggests that you know, if our interactions and socializations are a big driver of intelligence, then the brain, human brain would have a lot of parts dedicated to that. And it does, it seems. So, yeah, but obviously you've got to think that you know, happiness being an emotion or a mood, we have a lot of emotions and moods, and so many of them are they only exist in the context of other people, like the sense of guilt, the idea that you wrong someone without other people. That doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, it's not an internal thing. Happiness is internal. You can be happy without other people, but having other people around makes it more likely, makes it more complex, gives it a lot more flavor. And um, they say, like, most of the things you think that make you happy, you do as part of a group or at least a couple, you know, even down to the basic raw things like sexual interaction. You need someone else for that. That's sort of the whole point. And, uh, you know, like they, they, that was a very tricky chapter to write, the whole sex and relationships one, because like my previous book was very popular in schools and uh, psychology level courses. So how am I going to address the nitty gritty of carnal interaction without alienating half of my potential readership? That was a tricky balancing act. Tricky. Yeah, so um, in the this sign of friendship and social interaction um, section of the book, you mentioned something I'd never heard of uh, before called the Phi Complex. Mm. So I was just wondering if you'd be able to explain a little bit about that, please. Well, I tried to explain that as best because I hadn't heard of it either. It was a new thing for me as well. It's it's essentially the part of the brain, like the sort of network of neurons, which facilitate communication. In that they, when a conversation is happening, our phi complex and the person we're talking to, their phi complex, essentially sync up and the way I sort of perceive it, it's sort of like it's the neurological representation of the conversation itself. It's like this is the interaction that's happening. And obviously then both people involved in it will have essentially the same sort of activity going on in their brains because it's one conversation which, with two contributors to it. But obviously they're both being privy to the same 
the same event. Like I think the way I sort of tried to articulate it, and I don't know if this is as valid an example as I hoped, but because I'm not a technical person, I'm a very much a biology guy. It's sort of like having two games consoles linked up playing the same game. So, you know, if they are like playing the same game remotely via, via the internet, that game exists on potentially both both consoles. Like the same game is happening on both, but from a different perspective. And the fight complex is sort of like that. It's it's the game that's being played by two consoles simultaneously. And that's, that's sort of how I could grasp it and get around it. But like I say, it was really intriguing to find stuff like that because it wasn't, this wasn't in my arsenal already. This was something I stumbled upon myself. So, so yeah, so hopefully I got that across, but I'm sure there'll be plenty of other neuropods out there who know better who will tell me in exquisite detail how wrong I am when, when it's finally into the shelves in a few days. Another thing that struck a chord with me was the effect of, of home and local environment on mm. somebody's um, happiness. It's like, you know, I'm very much, I'm you know, not a hermit or whatever, but I'm very much a, a homebody. I, you know, I like spending time in my home. And I was just wondering, you know, if you could explain a little bit about how it evolved in humans. Like, is it a survival mechanism and all that type yeah, of thing? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, like, I think I, I looked into it because I thought my, my first attempts at looking at some sort of scientific stuff were a bit thwarted by the fact that my ideas were stupid. Always a bit of a downside. And I sort of went home to think about it and I felt happier when I got home. And that's sort of, you know, the, the, the mechanisms were in your head, like the, the, the cogwheels fall into place. And it sort of made me think about that, like the whole, like I think it didn't make the final cut, but you know, people accept that home is really important to you. Even the classic Wizard of Oz, like, you know, Dorothy saying there's no place like home, there's no place like home, even though she's currently in a sort of magical wonderland full of you know, pixies and fairies and sweets everywhere. And she wants to go back to a dusty, dusty barn full of tornadoes. I mean, that doesn't sound like the most logical choice, but because it's home, nobody questions it. So we also we clearly have this deep-seated instinct to form a home and to make a home. And I, even you start looking at it, it's such a common natural instinct. You think that even a beehive would count as a home, a wasp's nest or termite mound or like a, tight, or a beaver's dam. That, that's a home. Every animal, or not everyone, but most of them have this underlying instinct to form a safe place in which to reside. Because there's so much that we do as, you know, as biological organisms, which leaves us vulnerable. We need to sleep. We need to excrete. We need to eat. We need to reproduce and look after the young. It's a lot easier to do all these things when you have a safe environment, which you recognize as familiar and are able to map out you know, accurately. Even things like um, elephants, like they have territories, like they don't really go, along their, go beyond their home territory when they're searching for more food and things like that. So it's clearly an underlying instinct to that because we're, we, we most of the things which we've evolved to do is keep us alive and a home keeps us alive. It keeps us safe. It minimizes dangers because it provides a familiar environment. And even like the most logical level, if something's familiar, what that does tell you is that you've encountered it before and it didn't kill you. And therefore, it is probably safer than something new, which might kill you. And you know, we have this instinct to form this safe space safe place which will provide all the I think of a human home I think of all the things it provides too in fact usually it's where we eat it's where we sleep it's where we expel bodily waste it's where our family resides so the, a typical home contains so many things which are linked to our fundamental sense of safety our biological drives and these are all things which make us happy so even at the most basic level if you just think of a home as a place where your stuff is that's like that sort of t tends to make us happier because it provides us the sense of safety and comfort, warmth and security, and these are all things which quiet the 
the more anxious parts of the brain, the threat detection mechanisms and the things which cause stress and cortisol release. Uh, but then also we are complex creatures. We're not just, no, we don't just live in a home for a sense of safety. It's it's a big part of our lives, spend most of our time there. And we make it our own. We, you know, we put our own stamp on it. We put our personality on it if we can, if it's, if it's our house. You know, and some people in rental accommodation have far more strict rules and they tend to have a lot less happiness in their house because of that because they don't have the autonomy to say this is my home this is more a place where i live and it's the sort of thing that happens when like places like london where people have to move often because the rents are so extortionate and people are sort of constantly buying and selling and you know, try to move into out into or out of the city to to make you know to make ends meet and people tend to move from place to place specific location but as a result same thing happened in new york i talked to a new york journalist about this but as well, the city itself becomes like a home rather than any specific building in it. So you get this much larger sense of place identity. We feel like you are a Londoner rather than mm. someone who lives in London. And these are sort of things which can happen when, because humans have the brain capacity to encompass larger areas and things like that. So, so yeah, there's so many different things that a home does for us. And even back to the social interaction thing that we, we may crave social interaction, like most people need at least some level of social interaction to be happy or at least to know they can have it. But even if you are the most egregious, extroverted, outgoing person, you still need some downtime. You still need a sense of privacy and security. Like even even like the most outgoing, like uh, interactive person, they still have their own bedroom where they can go and be away from other people because interacting is hard work sometimes. You need, your brain is taxed by constantly being engaged with by other people and you need some you need privacy you, be, you need both people and privacy that's something there's two like they sound incompatible but it's just different times different times a day and different times of your life you need one than the other so you no know, that's the home provides these things it provides both communal spaces for you or your family or your friends who you live with and it provides a sense of privacy too which is you know, we, we need both of these things and yeah so there's there's loads of different boxes that a home ticks in the brain when it comes to making us happy or at least happier sure and um another thing that you touch on well mentioned in the book is um having aspirations and goals and something i thought fascinating about that was there seems to be a sweet spot in the degree to which you achieve these goals um, so there's, there's a couple of examples in the book where becoming too successful or too famous has actually had a detrimental effect on the person's happiness. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange one because you know, we, we want people to like us. We want to be successful. We want to be secure. We want to be liked. We want to be admired. We want to be you know, high status. These are all underlying fundamental goals. And much of human motivation, according to a lot of the neuroscience research is goal directed so a lot of things we do we do with a specific goal in mind i mean sometimes that goal might be i need the toilet so i'm going to go to the toilet it's my goal to get there and use the toilet and you do that quite regularly so you know it's not really a big deal but you no know, if we also have much longer term goals that we can you know, we are creatures we have the cognitive capacity to plan ahead and envisage our lives in the future which a lot of creatures can't do like they're very much live in the moment so we have this idea of what we want to do and what we want to be and that's that, that provides very motivational factors that's like there's a chapter about work and money and things which corresponds a lot with that if you end up having a job which feeds into your, your goals are whether it be you know if you want to be a leading surgeon and you have a job as a like in a hospital then that makes perfect sense whereas 
if you want to be like a famous rock star or something, we have a job which pays the bills so you can pursue that and with a, in a flexible schedule. That also makes you sort of kind of happy because you are working towards the goal that you have in your head. And jobs which distract from that, they tend to make you less happy. So if you want to be a rock star, but you've got a really demanding job and we don't won't let you go home to rehearse, it keeps calling you into work because it's all shifts, you never wake at time, that can be really stressful because both the work is hard and you're not fulfilling what ambitions you have. So yeah, so like the ambitions can make you happier if you're able to work towards them. But I think, as I said, we're talking to Kevin Green, the entrepreneur, like people who achieve their ambitions, and uh, then they they can they, they can be happier. Like if you've got loads of money, if you've got all the success you want, it's perfectly ho- possible to be perfectly happy then. But then I think it's one thing I keep coming back to in the book is that we're not finite creatures. We don't just stop once we've achieved a, a goal. Like we wake up the next morning and life carries on. And the brain doesn't like that. If you do, if you work towards a goal for ages, you've had a goal in mind for years and suddenly we achieve it that's great but then that doesn't last forever the the brain isn't static it's constantly changing it constantly craves new things new experiences and a sense that we are achieving still Uh, so then we need a new goal or we need something else to work on or like if there's no ceiling on it if you want to be a rich person then i mean how rich is rich enough for most rich people that's a lot of the time it doesn't seem to be any upper limit on how rich they want to be even like the richest man in the world, be it Bill Gates, still is still earning money. I mean, he could feasibly just stop now and never have to do anything ever again. And even like he'd still have enough wealth to last him like 50 lifetimes. But he's not. He's still working towards earning more money and keeping his businesses afloat and stuff. So there's clearly more going on there than just achieving a certain end point. And that's where it sort of becomes a bit more murky because if you've got all the you know the basic needs met, you end up graduating more psychological needs that you need to be liked, to be admired, to be looked up to, to be respected, even to be to be feared, to have power. These are all potential motivations too. So yeah, it, it's a very, it's a tricky balancing act comes sometimes if you are the sort of person who ends up achieving your goals. I think the best way to be is to be like myself, to have absolutely no goals and see what happens, <laughs> which is why I've ended up like this. Not too bad a place to be. Well, no, exactly. So I can't really complain about the strategy not working, but I'm sure there are plenty of disaster stories who use the same strategy. Maybe I'm the one exception out of the thousands of casualties which are just lying in the gutter right now. So when we're talking about happiness, I think it's it's maybe a bit difficult to talk about happiness without talking about laughter. You know, it's um, it's physical expression, if you like. So what's the, what is the the sort of neurological neuroscience take on the link between happiness and laughter? Well, there is actually a surprising amount of neuroscientific and other scientific research on laughter and jokes, which, you know, given the stereotypes, you might be surprised to hear, because apparently we're not compatible, scientists and comedians, and as someone who does comedy and who is a neuroscientist, I find that rather offensive at times, but I, I, I get where it comes from, um, and I think actually looking into it more, I can sort of, sort of see more where this might have arisen, this or cliche, however accurate or inaccurate it might be. And a lot of it, according to the available evidence, uh, it sort of boils down to a sense of incongruity. When something happens, or when we experience something which does not conform to how we think the world works or how things should go, and it could be it can be a visual thing, be a verbal thing, be a linguistic thing, behavioral thing. Like we we all have this mental model of how the world works in our heads and all the components of it. When things violate that, they cause a sense of incongruity, like this is incongruous, this shouldn't be happening, what is this? And normally that causes a sense of sort of stress or psychological stress or danger because the brain doesn't like uncertainty. 
uncertainty means I don't know what's going to happen, which means it could be a risk, which could be dangerous, and I have no way to prepare for it. So the brain has this underlying dislike of uncertainty. Uncertainty makes us unhappy a lot of the time. Um, but when this incongruity occurs, and when it can be shown to be harmless, uh, then it becomes pleasurable. It's like, oh, I see, I, there was something uncertain, and I fixed it, so I realized what it was. It was totally harmless. That's a good thing. So you experience this sort of release of tension. That's one theory, or it could be just a case of experiencing a sense of reward because an uncertain thing occurred, but it was resolved with no no danger, um, and therefore good. Well done. Have a reward for that. That's good. That's like the reward part of the brain saying to you, good, good work there for, for figuring that out. And that's sort of what jokes do. They provide, they set up a sense of incongruousness and then resolve it in a harmless way. Or like the sense of slapstick would do that. Someone falls over and like breaks their neck. That's horrific. That's terrible. Someone falls over and lands in some mud and they're fine, but they look they look ridiculous. That's good. That's sort of, ah, that's nice. That's also, they've lowered their status. You can feel a bit more superior as a result there. So it's the social element comes into it again. And it's sort of, uh, you know, it's constantly happening. Like the, the corner of the data I've seen, like it's not, it's not that much of it because obviously it's very hard to make people laugh within an, in an F- fMRI scanner. It's not the most amusing environment. But what data it is suggests that this on the brain, like there's a there's a hub in, in the middle of several lobes which sort of maintain over, oversees all the different sensory inputs because obviously you can be laugh you can laugh at any sort of sensory modality you can laugh at a funny sound a funny sight to even tickling is actually like the the most sort of primitive form of laughter and the primitive source of laughter that's why you can make rats and chimps laugh by tickling them it's actually you know these are animals which do laugh as well laughter actually predates humanity which is quite a weird thing to think about when you look at it that way but there's also such a massive social element of laughter. It comes back to the whole social, the importance of social interactions to, the, to the, just the human being and the human brain. And you know, when you think about the fact that any other emotional reaction we have, be it anger or sadness or um, you know, sort of disgust, it's kind of brief and fleeting. You, know, you maybe start crying when you laugh and you're too sad or something. But you know, it's like, ooh, ooh, ooh. it's like a brief thing. Whereas laughter is such a loud and obvious reaction. It's so not subtle like you know if you imagine you know it's like like people often find themselves compelled to laugh during a funeral because obviously it's just the tension in the atmosphere makes you want to puncture it with something and it's really obviously you can suppress it you do suppress it but it's very hard to do and a lot of that seems to come down to the fact that humor is such a is now a very much a social aspect again it comes back to the it's a way of interaction like people can be identified by their laughs often better than their speech sometimes and we are 30 times more likely to laugh in a group than when we're alone. And it's, it's, it seems to have a big role in human mating. You know, it's, it's sort of like a, a show of, it's not like we're stags like showing their massive antlers and rutting and peacocks with their big tails. Humans now use humor to seduce and, well, not seduce, but sort of show, look how quick my brain is. Look how fast and able I am to induce emotions in you. Let's look how superior I am as a specimen. And you know, this is a cliche that you all see comedians with women who are far, or male comedians with women who are far too good for them. And um, it never happened to me, I'll be honest. But <laughs> maybe I should need to put, maybe put more effort into it. But my wife would probably disapprove now. But yeah, it's it's sort of like a cultural cliche that you know funny men are more attractive. But then that comes into the whole cultural 
versus instinctive or like nature versus nurture thing? Like, is this because men do comedy? Are we just because we expect it? Or is there some sort of underlying aversion to women being funny? Because that's supposed to be a male role. So, so yeah, it's very much a, that, that's, that's a nice interesting facet, which I looked into a bit, but, but yeah, like laughter is so important, but it's also like, it's almost like the last resort of happiness sometimes. Like in the cliches of you say, you know, people say, at times like this, all you can do it do is laugh, or like at least we look back on this and laugh. It's like even if all, all else fails, you still have the ability to laugh, even if at that particular point in time you don't want to. You know, there's still the potential to laugh at things, and it's um, it's not like the most powerful part of happiness. You know, it doesn't. You know, it's kind of fleeting, but it's always there. Like it's always like a backup. If you know, if all if it all goes wrong, you can still laugh at something, and that's you know, that's sort of like a a useful aspect of happiness. Yeah. So uh, another. Sort of key feature of the book is that there is a lot of p- different types of people that that you've interviewed: researchers and scientists, obviously, but also pop stars, comedians, businessmen, etc. So, how did you go about choosing the people to interview, and did you have any particular favourite interviewees? Um, I mean, I would love to say like you know, I have spreadsheets and databases and things like who is the most suitable person for this and um, um, who is the leading expert in this field and a few times it was you know um chris chambers is like a leading neuroscientist in terms of neuroimaging and transcranial magnetic stimulation and sophie scott is like pretty much the go-to uh, professor sophie scott of ucl she is like the go-to person for studies on how the brain and humor and laughter works and so that's so there is that there and dr matt wall of um imperial or he's ucl but the study was imperial i think but his he just released this paper on um his peptin the sort of neurological hormone or the neurohormone which sort of sits atop both the lust and love mechanisms of the brain so these are people with very relevant and very up-to-date experience and knowledge of the field that i was looking into so there was an element of that and obviously dr petra boynton who is the uh, you know, the Telegraph's agony aunt and just but a leading social psychologist in the field of relationships. So a lot of people were very relevant. But a lot of the time it was just me scrolling through my phone book saying who might possibly talk to me who is relevant here. So, but like some, like, I spoke to Charlotte Church, for example, she, but she was, I thought, a very, very, very um, poignant person to speak to on the subject of fame because she became internationally famous at age 12. And that's a very rare experience. So she was performing for presidents and on movie sets and from other major pop stars and huge concerts and stuff. And she's like a small town Welsh girl like me. So I think we'd have something relevant there. I want to see what, how, how that affected her. Well, did that make her happy? If not, why not? If it did, what was it? And, but I wanted to speak to her. Uh, but then as I was getting ready for bed one night, I just got a text out of the blue from Rod Gilbert. You know, I, I ended up speaking to her as well. And she's saying, do you, a friend of mine is doing a, a one woman musical show about the neuroscience of love and would like to speak to a neuroscientist who knows how comedy works. So I said, you might be relevant. Just, oh, yeah. Well, I think there aren't that many, <laughs> many of us out there in the Cardiff area. So I said, yeah, of course I'll do it. And I was speaking to Karis Evans, who it turns out was, and she's also mentioned briefly in the book as well. And she sent me her CV, which just because she's just like wanted to make sure like Told me she was legitimate, which I didn't ever doubted, but there we go. And she said she's one of the choir on um, Charlotte, per- Charlotte Church's Pop Dungeon. And I said, oh, I actually was looking to speak to Charlotte. Do you Are you good enough friends that are passing a message? And she said, well, I'm in the car there now. We're going bike riding because they are best friends. <sighs> so basically it was just a case of, oh, yeah, so I do know these people. And I, I feel like I owe a lot of people an apology because when you um, become 
a Welsh person with any sort of level of media notoriety or you become a sort of a known person uh, who is Welsh. And a lot of people will end up asking you, oh, you're Welsh. Do you know Rob Brydon? Do you know Anthony Hopkins? Do you know Tom Jones stuff? You know, And I, I've always been quite short with people saying, look, I know it's a small country, but there are millions of us. So we don't all know each other. Please stop being so dense. But it turns out we do all know each other because that's what it just proved. And I feel, really, I feel really bad about judging people for assuming that we all are all our friends. So, um, so yes, so that, it was a lot of time. It was just, who do I know who is relevant, who has got key experiences on this? But it comes to favourite interviews, um, I really like talking to Charlotte Church because it was like the revelation, which I won't go into too much here because I don't want people to not buy the book in the end, but of what was more important to her uh, than the, the international fame was really quite eye-opening. And I think I, I really like talking to Girl on the Net, the, the sex blogger, because you know, we've become, become good friends over Twitter over the years. I, I like to think she does for sex what I'll try to do for neuroscience, trying to sort of demystify it, make it relatable, make it entertaining as best we can. And like we have a sort of similar ethos there. And it was interesting talking to her and sort of all her experiences, like what, you know, how much... Does you know, an active and very varied sex life make you happy? Does it? Is that something you're into? And it was the fact that her uh, sort of assessment of what she's learned by, let's call it experience, was very consistent with what, what the experts were saying, like Dr. Boynton, the relationship expert, and the things she concluded and the advice she would give, like from a very informed, very academic, uh, very well-read and studied perspective was the same sort of basic uh, conclusion that someone who's lived it uh, would, would come up with. So that, you know, it does show that maybe there is a lot of useful advice in that part of the book, at least. So yeah, I was very, I was quite happy to find that, you know, not, not planned at all, but none of this was. This is kind of um, like a big question, but can anyone be happy? Um, I've actually been asked this a couple of times already, but I think everyone who asks me this has a different sort of interpretation of what it means. But Based on what uh, I've found out, I think, I think everyone has the underlying mechanisms inherent in their brain to experience happiness. I think that is, barring, of course, major traumas or massive surgeries, that, that's always the caveat which you've got to put into these things. So I think everyone has the ability to be happy. Uh, but then again, sort of everyone has the ability to, well, the, the physical ability and the what's required to fly a plane but it doesn't actually mean you can do it it's uh it takes a lot of time and effort and practice so some people will be less inclined towards being happy some people are very predisposed to find the negative in everything and it really depends on uh the, well, obviously genetics are going to play a part in this but it depends on your background your upbringing like i know a few people who are twins and they are very different people, each of them. Like, so at one point, like, they grew up in the very similar environments, very well, exactly the same parents, same schools and everything. But you know, as they matured and then went their separate paths, they lived different lives. And that leads to uh, different outcomes and different outlooks on life. And, you know, people are happy and people can be happy, but it, it really depends all the time on circumstance. Like if you are someone who is living hand to mouth on the breadline and you've got like, family support and your partner just left and... You know, your house is falling down or your rent's going up and you, know, you have, if you have no control over these devastating factors, then you're not going to be a happier person. Are you? You're not going to be able to say, I am happy now because your circumstances don't allow that. But doesn't this, you know, the people like in those situations are going to be higher risk factors for 
you know, the, the, the lack of happiness in their lives, but it doesn't actually have to be, you know, someone who's living in such dire straits. Like people who are like big celebrities who are, tend to be unhappy as well. Like they, they have their own issues and problems to deal with and just having, having something which other people would say should make you happy doesn't necessarily make it the case. And so, yeah, so I think everyone has the underlying ability to be happy, but whether it's going to be lasting, whether it's going to be persistent or whether it's going to be easy, that very much varies from person to person. Can happiness ever have a downside? I'll say yes to that, actually, based on everything I've read in that it's good to subjectively, if you're happy, you're happy. That's good. You know, it's very hard to be happy and not see the good side of that. But in terms of longer term consequences, then yes. I mean, there's a very interesting study I found uh, in the discussion in the third chapter, which shows that for all this discussion or all this obsession in the sort of business world of having employees be happy, uh, because a lot of the data says that happy employees are more productive. I think the stat I found is that they are like 37% more productive. So if you have 100 happy employees, they're like doing the work of 137 for no extra cost. And however you think of your employees, if you're a business manager or if you're like sort of a CEO, even if you think your employees are all worthless scum, if you make them happy, you get more out of them. And that's going to be a, a very important thing for any business which wants to earn profit. So but despite this happiness, it's this, this theory that happy employees are better and more useful, lots of evidence suggests that they're not necessarily, that's not, that's not necessarily the case because people who are happy tend to be more selfish by all accounts and that they are more concerned with their own happiness than they are than that of others. And you could argue that's a chicken and egg situation. Are they happy because they're selfish, because they look after themselves more than anyone else? Do they put themselves first, therefore they've achieved their own happiness as a result? So you know, that's you know, that's a circular reasoning thing, but there doesn't seem to be a link there. And people who are persistently happy can often be more devastated or more or hit harder by it when something does go badly wrong, and which, which, which does happen because life is essentially random. You, know, you live long enough, something bad will happen to you be it low-level trauma or some just minor irritations which build up over time. But some evidence suggests that people who are, they have a predisposition to be happy, will be made a lot more unhappy by setbacks because they're not used to it. They don't have any sort of ability to cope with it. And that's another thing which seems to come up in that people who only ever have good things happen to them, they're they're kind of, let's say, stunted in a sort of, developmental sense, the concept of emotional competence, like the more varied and different emotions you experience over time, the more capable you are of processing them, of dealing with them. And you become sort of a more rounded person for it. Like people say, you don't, don't really have the ability to, you know, you're less likely to form a successful relationship if you've not had a bad one before, if you've not had one go wrong, because it gives you this awareness, this knowledge, this understanding of how things work. And it sort of explains a lot why people like who are in the most privileged positions, who've never had to deal with any hardships, tend to be, let's say, less pleasant people overall, if the current you know, political climate is anything to go by. So, you know, I don't like to get into the politics thing, but I will say that much. So, yeah, it, you know, it does suggest that happiness itself is good, but pure happiness all the time, that's not an ideal way to be. So just as one uh, sort of final question to, to round things off. Do you think science will ever reach a point where it can make definitive statements about the origin and effects of happiness in the brain? 
or will it always remain somewhat ineffable? And what? How do you feel about that if that is the case? This actually, this question actually comes up surprisingly often. In that, it's really hard to see where things are going to go in terms of how we can study the brain, even like in the next like fifty years or so, because technology develops so fast now and so readily, and like things like fMRI scanners weren't even thought of 50 years ago but now we can monitor the activity of a living brain and we do so all the time and it's you know it's, it's weird to think that that happens so fast so to be able to say yes or no regarding will we ever understand these things in the human brain is isn't something i'm even like able to do with any authority not that i have much authority the best of times but specifically in this instance and it is but it's interesting to see like one of the problems I find with talking about stuff like this or studying things like this, it's very, it's surprisingly easy to almost like wander into the field of philosophy sometimes when you don't actually think, well, what am I talking about here? Like this, like I can say these neurological processes occur, but then when it comes to the conscious experience of these things, then you're sort of into, are we talking about Cartesian dualism here or we wandered into quantum mechanics and stuff? So it becomes a far more sort of subjective or sort of a meta uh, thing to look at. And that becomes, like, I'm, I'm, uh, my, my PhD was in behavioral neuroscience. I'm technically a behavioral neuroscientist by training. And one of the things that behavioral neuroscience does, it essentially ignores the mind, as we would understand it. Not because it doesn't think it exists or anything, it's just that what, what can you do with it in a scientific sense? Like, how, how big is a mind? What or where does it end? What color is it? You can't actually measure a mind in any objective, replicatable way. And that sort of makes it scientifically redundant in many ways. So then when we talk about happiness as in like the, the, the dedicated conscious experience of it, then we're sort of wandering into that territory of, okay, so we, I can show you in the brain, maybe I can show you the brain like these parts of the brain are all integral for what people report as happiness. But then, we've, then we're sort of wandering into the, the sort of the cognitive, the consciousness aspects. And then, then you know, will, can we even look at such a thing with the technology we have to hand? I don't know. But I don't think necessarily it would be a good thing to say that if we were able to say, look, here's how happiness works in the brain. Take these pills. You'll be happy forever. That doesn't sound like a useful thing to achieve. That sounds like, you know, it's like sort of like reading the end of the book first not my book, any book, just like, okay, that's what that is. And you know, that's sort of, that's not the point of it. Like happiness is something which is meant to be like a motivator. It's from what I can, as my understanding now, it's something, we, you know, it's a sense of reward we feel when we've done something right, when we've done something we enjoy, when we've succeeded at something. And for these things to have any value, then, you know, not getting them shouldn't make you happy. And that's why things like hard narcotics like they constantly trigger the reward pathway of the brain and give us this blissed out state without any of the intervening stages of look like, when you do something or achieve something or accomplish something or just you know do something which the brain would recognize as being a good thing that's what happiness and pleasure is supposed to be responses to so to just hijack the whole system and just trigger it automatically that that doesn't really seem like something that would have any really useful outcomes insofar as we as a species exist. That was neuroscientist, comedian and science writer Dean Burnett talking about his latest book, The Happy Brain, The Science of Where Happiness Comes From and Why. Thanks for listening to the Science Focus podcast. 
In our May issue, which is on sale on the 2nd of May, we take a look at human body farms. These facilities could help forensics learn more about how our bodies rot, which could help them in solving crimes. In this issue, we also take a look at how emotions trick your brain, investigate whether psychological profiling can turn Facebook likes into votes, find out the sneaky ways that social networks are built to make you binge, and discover whether pollution could be leading us to a fertility crisis. Did you enjoy this podcast? If you liked what you heard, then why not subscribe and leave us a review? You can find us on iTunes, Acast, Stitcher and many of your favourite podcast apps. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.